You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, I'm going to cut straight to the chase here. Over the weekend, you went to a local fighting event at an outdoor venue at the uh, local minor league baseball stadium. I did. I was supposed to go with you and then uh, bowed out. How that's, was it? That's, that's one way to put it. How, how was it? What did you see? And how did it go? It was great. You know, uh, I went with Sir Nigel uh, since you bowed out, as you put it, which is to say the day of the event. You just kind of announced on Twitter that and, you weren't going. I informed going. you via Twitter that I would not be making it. Didn't, didn't even give us a reason. Just just wouldn't go. Uh, so I went with Sir Nigel, and that was fun, except uh, he kept offering to sing the national anthem uh, throughout the event, really, you know, not just at the beginning, uh, and then eventually, after a few too many beers, just started singing it, and I'm not even sure it was the American national anthem, uh, so we had to leave, but uh, it was good, except I would say... You know, September in Montana, maybe not the time for an outdoor MMA event. You yeah. do that in August, awesome. It'll be an awesome time. But uh, then again, I'm sure maybe the running the minor league baseball stadium is a lot cheaper in September. Uh, it got a little colder than I would have liked, and I kind of felt bad for the dudes trying to get warm and stay warm before their fight out there. I'm going to guess the opposite of having an outdoor venue in, say, Abu Dhabi. Yes. Uh, and also, this one didn't look like it was thrown together at the last minute and taken down via slave labor. So there, uh, there's that. Did anything noteworthy happen? I remember the last local fighting event that I went to was in the parking lot of a place uh, where they also have an event called the Testicle Festival. And, uh, yes, the uh, Rock Creek Lodge. Rock, Rock Creek Lodge, yeah. It was also an outdoor event. And uh, around about dusk, a guy whose nickname was Night Train fought. And as he was fighting, a train actually went by. So... You can see the symbolism. Yeah. The obvious symbolism. I assume that then he, he derived power from the train and, and won via yeah. terrifying stoppage. Like Diego Sanchez in the first season of The Ultimate Fighter. Yeah. This guy draws his power from a nearby freight train. <laughs> well, nothing that awesome happened, but then, I mean, nothing that awesome is ever going to happen again, I think we can agree. Uh, I will say that the, the local fighters, the Missoula boys, did pretty well. Uh, had a couple knockout victories, including uh, my man Sky Folsom had an awesome spinning back fist knockout that I put a link to on Twitter if people want to check that out. Uh, also, a local Montana event is just a good opportunity to see a fight between a dude wearing sprawl shorts who clearly, you know, trains and has cauliflower ear and looks like he's ready to do the damn thing. Fighting some kid from Great Balls and a pair of basketball shorts that it looks like he got at a sporting goods store earlier that day. And you can kind of call that one right there. Three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, which is more harrowing, that Andre Arlovsky could be a win away from a title shot or that he's apparently teaching himself to dance by watching old Eddie Guerrero videos? And in round number two, Emmanuel Newton has a full-blown finishing move. Is that enough to make you a star, even when you're not like a Diaz trapped in a beautiful fucking body? And in round number three, will one co-host of the co-main event podcast peel back the human skin of his face and reveal the green reptilian Illuminati Zufa zombie underneath? I don't know, but I'm excited to find out. I wasn't expecting that. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? Tips for the well-rounded fight fan, which we haven't done in quite a while, by the way. 
uh, master tweet theater and just saying stuff. So we're breaking out. We're pulling out all the stops in the uh, recurring features. I don't even know we'll have time for it all. We probably won't. Uh, but right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail comes to us from Cameron C. He writes, I came into tough being a big Rose Namajunas fan. Did I say that right? No, not at all. How do you, Namaha how do you, Yunus. Namaha Yunus. Nailed it. Uh, and flying submission attempts in general fan, having ba- having had limited exposure to Invicta fighters, but goddamn, if Joanne Calderwood doesn't make it to the finals, it'll be a damn shame. She got the knockout skills and the mic skills to be a major draw. Somehow sounds a lot less disgusting when after winning she says she's going to go home and get on top of her partner than when Brock Lesnar says it. Does this class of straw weights have more star potential than some of the lighter men's divisions? Discuss. Uh, I'm going to answer the, the last question, uh, which is yes on the star potential, but I think you also have to keep in mind that the straw weights are kind of getting a jump start that almost no other, uh, weight class in the UFC has gotten. True. And that is that you're bringing in, uh, essentially, allegedly the 16 best straw weights in the world. The, they're automatically getting this, this, uh, uh, reality show experience, which we're all hyped for finally for the tough reality show to have some meaning involved in it. Uh, so we're getting a chance to like get to know all of these people before they even show up in the UFC, which when you think about it is probably a pretty dynamic and effective way to start a weight class. No, you'd think so. Uh, I mean, the only problem is you got to get people to watch the show and that's, you know, we saw the numbers already. The, the tough, the, the numbers media, were not good and they were not great for the, for the tough premiere. Uh, you got to factor in a few of things like didn't really have a, a live event lead in like it often has, uh, like past seasons have had. You know, still dealing with the Fox Sports One exposure and recognition problem. Uh, but I still was surprised that those numbers were that low because they, the UFC really went all out, kind of pushing this one and, and a big media tour all over the place. I heard that they were also going to replay the first episode after football and before uh, football. Uh, yeah. Really, they did both. Yeah, I think uh, so. On, on the big network, right on Fox. Uh, yeah, could be. Well, that's you know you got to think that with that push, it's going to have some kind of effect because the first episode was really good. Yeah, uh, and uh, like Cameron C points out, you can see a number of possible stars that could come out of this one. And I thought Joanne Calderwood was particularly great because she is. Uh, I was watching that one with my wife, and and she was you know listening to Joanne Calderwood with this shy Scottish girl voice and saying like. Wait, is this girl any good? And I was like, Yeah, she's she's actually very good. She's like, she she looks like she can barely bring herself to to speak in front of a group setting. Like, she looks terrified just to have the camera pointed at her face. Uh, but man, when she gets in there, she can fight. Uh, that kind of stuff. I, I think that uh, there's a whole lot of different. It's not just like the same archetype over and over again you have a bunch of different type of people uh who bring different skill sets to the table here really excited to see how it turns out but you feel like like you said the great thing about this one is that instead of it being basically an american idol tryout where most of the people on the cast don't aren't good enough to be in the usc and don't really deserve to be there here you have one where pretty much everybody uh deserves to be in that weight class and then it's just a matter of finding out who's the best right now yeah and he Here's hoping that the the NFL lead in and and you know lead out uh, help will you know aid in propping up the ratings because if it doesn't maybe that just means like no one like tough is done like people have just seen this so many times that even when you start a new weight class and are going to crown a champion that it's not that appealing anymore because I agree with you that the first episode uh, was really good and and like compelling television and at the same time during the the two hours that it was on and i was watching it i couldn't help 
you know, feeling over and over again, like, this is interesting. I'm glad they're doing this with the straw weights. All of these fighters deserve to be there. At the end of the day, it's still tough. Yeah. Right? It's still the ultimate fighter. And th- it's that, still the same thing that you've seen a hundred times before. That has to be taken to, into account. That for the people who are the normal audience for this stuff, God, they've seen this stuff so many times by now. I mean, I'm finally being brought back to watch it now for this one when I haven't watched it for the last few seasons. Uh, and I'm glad that I'm watching it because it is really good. But, yeah, I, I would not blame anybody who said, you know what? Let me know how it all turns out, and I'll watch them when they're in the UFC, but I just cannot bring myself to see the inside of that gym or that house anymore. And that, That's a reasonable I, position. You know, and you could even make the case that the first episode of The Ultimate Fighter is usually the best because that one is one that largely takes place before they get to the damn gym. They do all of the uh, like the vignettes of the people at home in more of a UFC-embedded style, which frankly is a thing that I've been advocating for years they just do with The Ultimate Fighter. I feel like it would be a lot more compelling to see these fighters train for fights in their own home homes with their own teams with their own coaches but you know that doesn't fit the 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 program yeah what you're asking for there is just the ufc you want to see the ufc where they just show up and fight after having trained at home with their own coaches yeah but in reality show format okay right so you want embedded followed by actual fights yeah i think that would be a lot better and would also be a lot more useful at getting it would be a more useful tool at getting to who's the best fighter in that tournament as you have as it stands now like the ultimate fighter experience is so weird that like, I don't even know that it is that it, that it tells you who the best fighter is. It tells you who responds to that situation the best. Right. But like, you know, this is one of these reasons I believe why you see people who don't win the tournament, but get into the UFC later, go on to kind of have often or sometimes at least better careers than the winner because they're allowed to go home, train with their teams and actually have a full training camp before they have these fights. That is a fair point. It is such an artificial environment. You never know how that's going to shape things. Second question this week comes from Fergus O'Farrell. I mm. hope that's a real name. Me too. He writes, game show he host. or she, I guess, writes, this Saturday, uh, Jessica Andrade, how'd I do there? There you go. Nailed it. Uh, looked impressive and claimed the joint second longest win streak in the bantamweight division with three. However, she, she, she said she was not ready for a title shot in her post-fight press conference in the division where the upper echelon fighters are few and far between. How would you feel about Jessica welcoming Holly Holm into the organization? Do you think Holm will get an immediate title shot or does she want to a tune-up fight? Perhaps the UFC may not risk the tune-up, especially with someone like with the submission game of Andrade. It would end up it could end up like Hector Lombard and the Barbarian. Is Jessica Andrade versus Holly Holm a viable contest? Or will the boxer ride into an immediate title shot? Uh, Jessica Andrade, if I'm not mistaken, went with what I would call the, the anti-Betch Cohia strategy. And that was instead of calling out Ronda Rousey after you win, uh, saying that you needed two more years so you could, quote, last longer than 16 seconds in yeah. the cage with Ronda Rousey. That's interesting. That's an interesting strategy to take. You don't hear that very often. It might be more of a self-preservation style strategy than than what Betch Cohea is doing, which is, you know, throwing, casting herself headlong into the teeth of the unbeatable champion, which uh, has has been a strategy that's worked like a charm for her, I will say. It's definitely made her an interesting commodity and, and uh, a personality that you want to follow in the UFC. But at the same time, nobody expects her to beat Ronda Rousey, so there That's you true. go. Whereas Jessica Andrade seems like she's going to take her time if she can, and uh, you know, try to try to get as as well of a rounded game as she can before she goes in there for the big one. Is it possible that she's really looking at the long game here and saying, "Well, I don't know if anybody's going to beat Ronda Rousey, and if you wait two years, she might have taken off for Hollywood yeah. by then, and then uh, the top spot is a lot 
more uh, wide open. We can all kind of compete for that. And if you lose now on a title shot, harder to get another title shot later on down the line, even if you know Ronda Rousey has vacated the title. So let's answer the question here about Holly Holm and Jessica Andrade. I don't know that, that uh, I would expect him to throw Holly Holm in there with with, with Andrade right off. Uh, I don't, also don't think she's going to get an immediate title shot. No, unless, she doesn't want one. From what from what she and her manager say, they both say they want at least one or two fights. Yeah, and they have a five-fight deal, so there's really no need to rush it. Uh, I would expect that she would get at least one tune-up fight unless things really, really fall apart on the UFC and trying to find Rousey an opponent for January 3rd or whenever they want to do the the end of the year uh, New Year's pay-per-view. Uh, does it surprise you that it, it kind of seems like it's taken a while to, to get Holly Holm an, uh, an opponent? Like I, I just I was looking at this today on the Internet. She signed a couple months ago back in July, and we've we've essentially heard nothing since then. Well, she also had a broken arm when oh, she signed. Oh, there you go. Yeah, well, so do she, it. she broke her arm in her last fight uh, before signing with the UFC. Uh, and so I think by the time she actually signed was like a week away from a doctor's appointment where they were going to tell her exactly you know where she was and whether she could get back to full training. So I think that's the main reason for that. Uh, you know, I don't think that somebody like Jessica Andrade necessarily would be a bad fight for Holly Holm because I think the question right now with Holly Holm, right, is ground game. Like we, everybody knows she has the stand-up skills. Uh, can she fend off somebody who wants to take it to the mat and, and contest the fight there? I think that against somebody like Jessica Andrade, she'd have a pretty significant size advantage. Uh, yeah, she's tiny. Yeah. I mean, she's what, five foot two? I think she's like five three, something like that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Holly Holm, I think like five seven, five eight. you know, I, I think that, uh, the test for Holly Holm is going to be somebody who is a really good wrestler and also, you know, somebody like Amisha Tate would be a pretty interesting test for, for Holly Holm. I don't think that that's necessarily the fight they're going to make right away. Right. Uh, but, you know, I, I would say Jessica Andras, that'd be an interesting test for Holly Holm. I'd like to see that. Yeah. And I guess it, it harkens back to the age old matchmaking question. Like, if you have a commodity like Holly Holm, what do you want to do with her fight, first fight in the UFC? Do you want to, give her a legitimate test and test out her ground game or do you want to give her someone that she goes out there and runs over like a truck and uh, so you can establish her as a potential star in the division which i think is you know perhaps the the uh uh the age-old question with with matchmaking in general and also kind of like what you might call an old school ufc approach where uh they they weren't necessarily giving anybody easy fights yeah i mean that's one thing i think that you have to pretty consistently give the ufc credit for is that they don't uh look to just build one person up or give anybody too many easy fights. There aren't a whole lot of easy fights to be found in the UFC. And I think that they've kind of learned their lesson on that, where you try to make those fights every once in a while where you think, all right, well, you know, Crow Cop's going to go out there and beat this Gabriel Gonzaga character, and then we'll, we'll sail right on into the, the big money title fight. And it doesn't happen that way. You, you have to make fights where you can, you can work with whoever wins rather than trying to predict the outcome because, you know, the MMA gods, they, they see you doing that shit. Right. They will mess with you. They might fuck around and have you look not that good in a fight against Joey Beltran. <laughs> Spoiler alert for later in the show, <laughs> by the go. way. Uh, the third question this week is from Philip Hanna, who writes, Nicholas Diaz, period. We know he likes to get high, throw knives, and talk shit. Who doesn't? Maybe I'm wrong, but I always thought old Nick was actually a pretty nice guy. Insane, but nice. I see very little wrong with the above. However, DUIs and missing court dates seems like a shitty move. The fuck is he thinking? Asking to use the toilet so he can throw up the alcohol is probably the worst idea I've ever heard. I don't think he knows how breathalyzers work. Is he fucking up his career again? Is the Anderson Silva fight in trouble? Let's hope the charges are dropped because it seems like that means the same thing as innocent in the usa <laughs> wow 
a lot of questions there, but a good email from Philip Hanna, yeah. who placed in this year's uh, co-main event podcast White Elephant Essay Contest. First of all, I had when we were talking about this on Twitter after this news broke that not only had Nick Diaz been busted for DUI, that it was actually his second DUI this year, and that he was also get, being charged with some kind of obstruction charge for trying to throw up after he'd been arrested. And from a couple uh, purported lawyers on Twitter, I was told that that's actually maybe a savvy move, trying to throw up, that it might void the the breath test if you're able to do that. And that's why they were trying to prevent him from, from doing that, to which I say, God damn it, this is America. And in America, you ought to be able to puke whenever and wherever you please. I like the term purported lawyers. Who knows? Just Who knows what these people actually do? Random guys on Twitter. Uh were you like that? I want to let's talk about this question. Is the Anderson Silva fight in trouble? Because were you absolutely like, not. were you like me, though, when this news was read and I thought to myself, oh, God, like this means that Nick Diaz will have multiple court dates he needs to make. And if he's found guilty of uh, driving under the influence in, in the state of California, I would assume that they're going to shackle him with some uh some court mandated education, perhaps, or a you know some kind of basically uh, more shit he won't show up for. Is yes, what you're exactly, like a string <laughs> of important dates that he needs to be in a certain place at a certain time, which, which makes will not. me really, really nervous. And I, as soon as I saw this news, I was like, "Oh my god!" I hope the UFC has a fixer on the plane right now to California to go in there and basically live handcuffed to Nick Diaz until the Anderson Silva fight to make sure that he shows up to pee in a cup for his PO or whatever you're going to have to do after uh, this. I'm I'm sure they got Winston Wolf out there right now. But come on, man. The UFC was trying to bust Jeremy Stevens out of jail the day of a fight. Come, you think that they're going to be put off by a DUI arrest months out? Hell no, man. Well, I'm just saying, like, what if he misses one of those and then has to go to jail? What if we get into a Chris Lieben type situation where, if I'm not mistaken, Lieben was locked up and couldn't make the date against Michael Bisping, right? Didn't we have, like, a postponement yeah. Yeah. years ago? That's true. Well, I mean... I would think that uh, the UFC is going to do everything possible and like right up to, you know, having somebody attach a big chain link around the bars of the jail and use a big ass truck from Donald Cerrone or something to yank the wall off. So basically short of a jailbreak, they're going to make sure that Nick Diaz is able to make this date. And I, I mean, I, I right now it doesn't seem like it's uh, serious enough charges to really affect it. What I wonder more though is about like the question, is he fucking up his career again? Like, is this Nick Diaz just on the verge of, uh, his brilliant plan to sit out until a big money, big fight comes along is right on the verge of working, and then he's kind of self-sabotages with stuff like this. That seems worrisome to me. Here's an idea. The Fight Pass reality show. A, a reality show for the Fight Pass. UFC sends Burt Watson to California to live in Nick Diaz's house to make sure he gets through all of the court-mandated uh, appearances that Nick Diaz has to has to make. What oh, do you I think? like that. I like that. What do you call it? Bert and the fighter. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. Yeah, just seeing what sticks. Let's not do that. But uh, I like that idea. And especially, how, about, how about we rolling with Bert Watson and Nick Diaz? Yeah. Well, I mean, how about if you just call it we rolling and it's like every season Bert Watson goes to live with a different troubled fighter. I like it. To kind of get his shit together. To pull him up by his bootstraps. Yeah. Break him down first so then you can rebuild him. Bert Watson's going to make sure you're not missing any dates. I lo Tim Kennedy loves to talk about how much he hates having to deal with that part of the UFC because they treat him like, you know, they treat every fighter like he's Nick Diaz, basically. And right. it's like they'll tell him, all right, we need you down here at 245 in the hotel lobby tomorrow. And Tim will say, Bert, what time is the van leaving? <laughs> He'll say 4 o'clock. And they're like, 
all right, well, then I will see you at 3.50. Like, you don't need to do the inflated time thing hoping that I'll go ahead and fuck it up, but still fuck it up within the acceptable range. Like, I was in the military. I can figure out where how to be somewhere on time. Treat me like an adult. Last question this week comes to us from Clark Monroe. He writes, so next Saturday slash Sunday, lumbering heavyweights Mark Hunt and Roy Nelson will lumber around Japan, throwing lumbering sticks of lumber at each other's faces. Awesome. Tell me how to feel. Am I excited about this? Indifferent? A little bit depressed? Preach, brothers. Well, I'm not going to act like I don't want to see this shit. I don't care. I don't care if they are a combined 78 years old, uh, which I believe is true. Mark Hunt's 40. (laughs) Roy Nelson, 38. Uh, gonna go back in there among the ghosts of the Saitama Super Arena, uh, throw them fangs at one another's big block heads to see who can stand up to it in his, uh, declining years. I don't know, man. I mean, I don't expect it to be a fight that means a whole hell of a lot. Uh, and it seems like it feels like it means less as soon as you put it on fightpass.com. The uh, fightpass.com? Uh, which I'm sure we'll discuss later. But I don't know. I mean, I, I do want to see this fight. Like, it seems like it's gonna be fun. Yeah, it is going to be fun. I'm not sure that it's one that you should set like an iPhone alert for to remind you to wake up or to turn on your computer whenever it happens here in America. But, I mean, you put Roy Nelson and, and Mark Hunt in the cage together, I, there's probably not a lot to dislike there, right? And As long as you can divorce yourself from what's happening inside their craniums, like this will be a pretty fun one to watch two uh, relatively proportional but hard-throwing heavyweights with major league chins go out there and try to knock each other's faces off. If that's what you're into, boom. They got you covered on and the fight And why pass. wouldn't I be into that? I, on I, fightpass.com. If you like the UFC, if you like this this style of fighting, you're probably going to be into that, I would I would assume. And at the same time, if you miss it, I'm not sure that you're going to like have to kick yourself over it or anything like that. Well, yeah, that's that's a fair point. I mean, I do I look at the the top 4 fights on this card and I got to say I like every one of them. I mean, the the undercard definitely uh isn't going to get me up super early to just to check out that stuff live. That's the kind of let me hear what was awesome afterwards, and then I'll go back and check it out. But, uh, you know, Misha Tate and Rindakai, uh, Akiyama and Amir Sadala, uh, Miles Jury, who will presumably talk about how easy it was to beat Takanori Gomi, uh, and then uh, Mark Hunt and Big Country. I mean, that's a pretty fun, pretty fun little fight car right there. It is. It is. I will give it, I will give it the credit that it deserves, and I'm also looking forward to Miles Jury being like, God, I'm surprised, you know, not trying to be a dick, but that was really easy. I just went out there and beat Gomi. I can't believe how easy it was. All right, well, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, click the link in the top right-hand corner that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you might as well sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning and catches you up on all the MMA news and notes that we miss from Monday to Monday. For right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, Andre Arlovsky is back or whatever. 
currently now riding a four-fight win streak, including two straight in the UFC after he went out there and knocked out Antonio Bigfoot Silva at UFC Fight Night Bigfoot versus Arlovsky in Brazil over the weekend. Let's cut straight to the chase. What did you think about the dance? You know, uh, I was just noticing when I go to the UG and I'm just scanning the uh, the forum topics, and it warms my heart to pass over those and see one thread just entitled Arlovsky Titty Dance. And I know, I know what's going to be in there, and I know that I don't want to see it, and yet I can't resist. I know this This is right up your alley, right? It wasn't too slinky. No, I know this is probably going to... But gonna, it was erotic. I know this is going to probably blow your mind, but I didn't mind it. I didn't mind the Arlovsky post-fight, as I believe you just called it, titty dance. Let's call it what it is. It's a titty dance. Uh, maybe it was because it didn't go on for very long. It was just kind of like a quick shimmy. Yeah. Like you he, were the like, guy just caught a first down. He's going to do a quick <laughs> shimmy and then you yeah. know do the this first down sign and then jog back to the huddle. You couldn't be totally sure that you'd actually see, saw what you thought you saw. Uh, well, you could if you saw the vines that were on the internet afterwards where it, it just kind of looped over and over hypnotizing. again. hypnotizing. Yeah, I can't look away from that. How, by the way, how mad is the UFC, do you think, that like the thing to do is post vines of the stoppages on Fight Pass? Like, <laughs> because if you don't want to watch the show, you can just wait for the vines, which has got to just be like some people are getting sued over that, you right? You can't fight the internet. You can't. I guess. Let's talk about Arlovsky. Looked, um, I guess, pretty good here. Um you know, he's all, I guess a while ago when he had, uh, you know, the, that, that stretch where he lost three fights in a row back in 2008 to, to 2011. That's a long stretch, 2008 to 2011. Uh, four fights in a row. Yeah, four fights in a row. Maybe we thought that, that, that he was done, but during that time, I don't know that he ever really lost his offensive skills. He always kind of looked fleet of foot. He always looked like a pretty good uh, technical striker for the heavyweight division, a, definitely a talented stand-up guy, but was had this thing going where it just seemed like, I guess the, at the time, the, the thesis statement was that his, his chin was gone. He would just get knocked out, right? Uh, so and I think that's why people thought he was done, right. because it's very seldom that you see somebody come back from that. You know, right. you don't, usually once your chin starts to go, it only heads in one direction. So I'm not going to say that this this performance against Bigfoot Silva necessarily looked out of character for Arlandi, Andre Arlovsky, because you know I think maybe he looks a little bit better now that that uh, he's he's working on his footwork a ton with Greg Jackson and Mike Winklejohn and and is moving around the cage and and firing off combinations. But uh, does this prove that he's back or that he's a viable member of the heavyweight division, or does that just does that say good things about Andre Arlovsky or bad things about the heavyweight division? Were we too quick to call it quits on this guy back in the day? Well, I think we might be too quick to do everything, which is kind of <laughs> how we do in MMA. That you know, we we always look at your last fight and then want to make just broad, sweeping generalizations about your future and past based on that. Uh, I don't know, man. I mean. It's one of those where he didn't look great in that Brendan Shaw fight, looked pretty good in this one, uh, and then, though you have to wonder, like, okay, well, he also fought a Bigfoot Silva who had been off for a while off that suspension, was forced to get off his, his TRT regimen in order to, to take this fight, you know, hopefully, uh, and so you can do a lot of a lot of variables there uh, to try and figure out what it means exactly. I mean, we're still going to have to see more of them, I guess, uh, before we know. But you do you look around at the heavyweight division, and it's not like you really have to be worried about being eaten up by these young guys scorching their way up the ranks. God knows that's true. You know, it's it's weird. You know, it's you you look around. Uh, you know, you got Andre Arlovsky and a two fight win streak in the UFC. Uh, ben Rothwell uh, looking like he's going to crack the top ten here after knocking out Overeem. 
then, you know, Mark Hunt and Roy Nelson going to do it in Saitama. And you're like, so wait a minute. It's basically 10 years ago, except everybody's, you know, gotten a little bit older, but it's still basically the same guys that it was back then. The heavyweight division really hasn't changed that much. Yeah, I think we talked about that on the podcast a couple months ago. I wrote a thing about it on Bleacher Report. It's kind of like it begs you to ask the question, like, who are guys like Cain Velasquez going to fight in like five years, right? Because I went through, I think we talked about this at the time, I went through the entire UFC heavyweight division, at least as it's it's listed on UFC.com and looked at every fighter to find out how many of them were even under the age of 30. And I think it was like five. And none of those guys were particularly highly ranked either. Yeah, nobody and one of those 10, dudes, really. I mean, some of those dudes are obviously like uh, Stefan Struve, who we all know is pretty young, but like at this point has had some physical ailments that have kept him out of the cage. Some of those dudes are like Todd Duffy, who who's still not quite 30. So it's like, even though they've got some young guys, I don't know how many of them can be considered like hot young prospects, you know, and one of the well, dudes he's like junior dos Santos, he's like 30, right? He's like, like he's, 30 or 31. He and he and Velasquez are, are, are about the same age. Uh, and, and you've also got some young guys like Stipe Miosic. Uh, one of the guys under 20 that you thought was going to be a big prospect was Guto in a uh, who also has had a lot of injury problems, kept him out of the cage. And then, you know, recently got knocked out in his most recent appearance. Uh, but I think you're right. This is, I think it's a legitimate problem for the UFC and, and, uh, you know, is almost enough to make you ask where are all the young heavyweight prospects at. And I think the correct answer is the NFL. Yeah. Uh, but let's, you know, let's talk about that. The relative, like, shallow nature of the UFC heavyweight division. Andre Arlovsky has won two fights in a row. One of them was that stinker over Brennan Shaw, but now he knocks out, uh, Bigfoot Silva. If he goes out and beats a Ben Rothwell or a Stipe Miocic, like, is he a number one contender? Is he that close to a title shot? Or, or do we still have at least a veil of depth in this division? Man, that would be kind of amazing, wouldn't it? If Andre Olowski goes out there, wins one more fight, and suddenly it's, you know, say the year 2015, and Andre Olowski is fighting for a UFC title? God damn. I don't know if that would be awesome or terrible. Yeah, let's. I mean, fast forward a year, year and a half. What if Andre Arlovsky and uh, and Robbie Lawler were both UFC champs? Wow, what year would it be? You just blew my mind. Yeah, Paul Buentella would be picking up the phone to call the UFC, see if he could get back in, right? <laughs> yeah, and then who knows what might happen with Joe Riggs once he heals up from those gunshot wounds? <laughs> um, I was surprised to find out that this was considered such a huge upset. I guess I didn't look at the uh, at the odds beforehand. I'm not sure that I would have picked Andre Arlovsky going in, but like when you think about a matchup of styles here, and you you consider the fact that these guys are probably going to go out there and 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 you know, throw ham hocks at each other on their feet. I would expect Andre Arlovsky would be faster and have better, better motion, be able to, I guess, cut better angles than Bigfoot Silva. I, I, I was not tremendously surprised he won this, although it seemed like this was a big upset according to the odds. Well, you know, Bigfoot Silva did win the first fight. Uh, and I think that maybe the last fight we saw from Bigfoot Silva against Mark Hunt was one where people finally started to give the big man a little bit more of due before it was, Oh, you know, he, He's overperforming or he's kind of, you know, getting by like where he's getting beat up by Alistair Overeem and then he kind of comes out of nowhere late in the fight when, when Overeem starts to flag a little bit and he knocks him out. Uh, and then he goes out there and he has that awesome fight against Mark Hunt. Of course, what do you do with that when he tests positive for, uh, you know, elevated testosterone levels after that one? And it was weird too. I, like watching the, the fightpass.com stream of it and Kenny Florian at one point makes a remark about, you know, how impressed he was with Bigfoot in that last performance. And then that one really proved that he was, you know, someone to be taken seriously, even though he tested positive afterwards. And it's, that's tough to say, I think, because it kind of, how can it not mar it in your memory to be like, okay, that was the best fight I think I've ever seen you in. 
And it was also one where you were clearly cheating on drugs. Uh, how can you not connect those two afterwards? Yeah, and I guess to his credit in his defense, it looked like he did kind of hurt Andre Arlovsky in this fight right towards the end, hit him with a hook kind of above the ear. Looks like Arlovsky was a little bit rattled. And then it seemed like maybe a situation where Bigfoot Silva got a little over-aggressive and ended up running into a, a straight straight punch that, that well, he, dropped him. He was getting caught with that right hand pretty much yeah. from the very beginning. You know, he, he got caught with it to the body, got caught with it to the head a couple times, and then it was just one where Arlovsky clearly had found the opening there and he hit him with it once and then followed up one more time and dropped him uh, and then you know had to make that that long circle around the dude's body to get within hammer fisting range of him uh and then went ahead and, and put him the rest of the way out i mean i think that that's one where it's not like bigfoot silva looked awful you got to give arlovsky his due there uh i just wonder if arlovsky gets in that kind of fight where can he take the blows from the heavyweights because that's always the thing with these guys where it starts to seem like a coin flip you know once those guys are standing there throwing big punches at each other. It's just basically who can land first. And that, I think that's still the question. I don't think we've really seen his, his chin really tested really solidly uh, you know, since he's been back in the UFC. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with him when he steps up a little bit in competition and fights some of those other guys who have also been winning lately. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to Master Tweet Theater for this week. Uh, ben, after watching the Bellator card this week, I've kind of finally come to the decision that we need to stop pretending like tons of celebrities are into mixed martial arts. After Bellator spent almost the entire broadcast uh, using their own fighters' tweets as quote-unquote celebrity tweets. Huh. Because I got news for you, Daniel Strauss is not a celebrity. Uh, he's no? just, a, just a Bellator fighter. And then they cut to the crowd to show the celebrity that's there, and it's uh, Rick Mahorn. Uh, former member of the Bad Boys, Detroit Pistons, uh, early 90s team that won a couple of NBA titles. Oh, yeah. And hey, man, A-lister. nobody's more into the, the Bad Boys than I am, but Rick Mahorn, are you fucking kidding me? That dude does not count as a celebrity. It reminded me of the time the UFC showed in the crowd the last time they were in Texas, the actor who portrayed Luke Cafferty on the final season of Friday Night Lights, who I'm, I like me some Friday Night Lights, and I'm into Luke Cafferty, but also... Not really a celebrity, per Ouch. se. You're tough. You're tough on your celebrity uh, list. I, I don't, even if you do find a celebrity, doesn't it always just seem like you're just trying to be cool by association? Like, look who we know. Right. And it's never like Denzel, right? <laughs> it's always the guy who played Luke Cafferty. Even if it was Denzel, I mean, it's, it's not really like impressive to me that like famous people also watch what I watch. Fucking kidding me. See, that's where you're wrong. I would love it if I was watching this. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me has to go out to UFC bantamweight Johnny Bedford. Now, you'll remember in his first meeting with Ronnie Yaya, there was the inadvertent clash of heads that we all saw that clearly dropped Yaya and allowed Bedford to jump on him and put him away. It was so clear that it happened that the blood was dripping down Johnny Bedford's forehead after that clash of heads, even though afterwards, when it was announced as a no contest, he was kind of a dick about it uh, and and just couldn't believe that it had gone down that way and then kind of acted like he wanted to fight Ronnie Yaya again right there in the cage. So anyway, they booked it. They do it again, brother. The fight starts, and what does he do in the first round? But he throws an illegal kick, a soccer kick, to the head of a downed Ronnie Yaya pretty much right at the start of the rematch. Are you fucking kidding me, Johnny Bedford? Are you familiar with the rules? Because uh, I say that they went over them in the locker room with you beforehand, and yet you show no indication that you were paying attention during that time. 
Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? That and sounds like, like always cheating MMA because he didn't get penalized for that move at all. That sounds like straight Dundasso right there. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. Sir Nigel Longstock's here. We're going to play a little Master Tweet Theater. That starts right now. Well, it's that time again. We welcome back to the podcast a friend of the show and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am sweet and sassy. And you're just ripping off Gegard Mousasi there, the young vagabond. Is that true? Is he also sweet and sassy, sir? Dare I say he is sweeter and notably sassier. Like Estonian molassier. Okay, we're just going to ignore that and move right on. Uh, he's from Estonia, right? No. Somewhere no, he's near not. there. Right? The Estonian <laughs> portion of Russia, perhaps? Damn it. You're just not even close. Oblivia. Okay. Um, Oblivia? Is there, <laughs> is there a theme for this week's Master Tweet Theater before we go any further? Yes, sir, there is. The theme is media criticism. Oh, boy. This is going to be fun, assuming that the tweets have anything to do with the theme, and that's always just 50-50. Some of them do. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, those of you who don't know how this works, so Nigel's going to read us off some tweets from some people... Uh, ostensibly under the guise of media criticism. And uh, Chad and I are going to try and guess who the tweeters are. So, Sir Nigel, when you're ready, hit us with the first one. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. Ahem. Tweet the first. Now, there's some tricky punctuation here, so I'm going to read it both ways. Okay, good. There's there's only two different ways. That's good. Tweet number first, way the first. Only one in movies about to watch TMNT. Okay. I'm trying to figure out how the punctuation is going to change that, but go ahead. Way the second. Only one in movies about to watch TMNT. I feel like maybe there's a subtle difference that I did not detect. Chad, do you have any idea what the fuck Sir Nigel's trying to pull here? Well, I think the second way made me feel more like this person might have been an English speaker and that they may have been the only one in the theater before Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie, played. That's what I thought the first one was saying. The first one to me was just a bunch of... Pops and whizzes. I didn't didn't catch a word of it. That's the Sir Nigel touch, sir. You care to explain yourself here? Yes, there is an apostrophe in movies. So it could be only one in movie is about to watch TMNT or only one in movies, the movies, about to watch TMNT. Well, I feel like this has kind of been a, a red herring to distract us. Um, let's see, who would want to go see TMNT and be really excited about being the only one there? I'm going to say your dog, Joseph Benavides, even though I guess him like every week and it's never right. Would he put an apostrophe in the word movies, though, is if, the question. If he was really excited and he just the autocorrect yeah, got him. he got auto autocorrected. It happens. You know, I'm going to go with uh, the return of an old Master Tweet Theater favorite that we haven't seen in a while. And that is Ariane Celeste Benchimol Lopez Dupree. Get the fuck out of here. She's not going to see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That may be, but I think that she would put an apostrophe in the word movies. Okay. All right. Sound reasoning. Ouch. Both fine guesses, both vaguely insulting, and both wrong. It is Kendall Grove. Oh, he's really making a – he's coming on strong. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we really should be using some kind of uh, spreadsheet to, ta to track Sir Nigel's tendencies because – I feel like if we were to approach this like a baseball scouting style, we could really hammer him. So you want us to get into some advanced metrics. Yeah, basically. Do not moneyball me, sir. <laughs> I'll moneyball the shit out of you. Hmm, we shall see. Tweet the second. 
Sunday Cheat Day on 12th episode of Naruto Straight. 12th episode of what? Naruto. A Japanese cartoon, sir. Oh, are you trying to pronounce that weird because you're all, because you think you know Japanese? Naruto. Naruto wa ii desu yo. God damn it. All right. Uh, Josh Barnett. Would Josh Barnett have a cheat day, though? You're saying that most days would cheat days for Josh Barnett? Well, he's a heavyweight. He doesn't have to worry about making weight. I'm going to guess Roxanne Mataferi. Oh, that's another good one. Both fine guesses, both grounded in raw conjecture, and so both wrong. It is Chris Laban. Oh, really? The crippler, who apparently doesn't understand that a cheat day means food and not just doing whatever you want. Hey, you do your cheat day the way you want and let leave him do his the way he wants. In the other six days of the week, he's reading the Critique of Pure Reason. <laughs> Shut the hell up. Come on. <clears throat> Tweet the third. The biggest stories are about pro athletes that are acting horribly. Focus on the athletes changing the world for the positive. Hashtag drama news. So here we have somebody arguing that we should, I suppose, ignore these huge scandals of athletes doing terrible things in order to focus on the ones who are, like, doing some charity work or something. What about all the football players who didn't punch their girlfriends on camera? That's true. That's a, that's a valid media criticism right there. Uh, Chad, you, you want to go first here? Could we be getting into some extreme irony with the poet Philip Baroni here? I, I think that's an offbeat choice for this one, but it's... Too delicious for me not to go with. Is he really known for hashtag use? I think he could he could go hashtag. Okay. All right. I'm going to say another master tweet theater favorite, Rich Franklin. Oh, you know what? That's a good guess. God damn it. Both fine guesses. Neither man likely to intentionally venture into irony and both wrong. It is Ramsey Nijem. Oh, God damn it. A dark horse. Yeah, that one kind of came out of nowhere on us. He does not tweet often, but when he does, he tells us what's what. (laughs) Well, we appreciate his media criticism. Hmm, tweet the fourth. So I made mushroom soup today. It looks like those pictures of shoes from the Depression era. I bet it tastes great, you guys. Those are capital letters. I, you know, I was just going to ask because you really put something into it there at the end. A little bit of mustard. Yeah, that's the, that's the extra touch that we get. All right, so somebody here who, who is kind of funny uh, and can can poke fun at their own uh, cooking ability or lack thereof. Um, damn it, I'm going to say Joe Riggs, and I have no reason wow, to believe that's correct. Really Joe Riggs. Yeah. Wow, Julie Kedzie's going to be really mad at you. Because that's Julie Kedzie. Oh, is it? It is! Oh, damn it! It is Julie Kedzie meeting me at an unknown date in Kansas City for a fight at 245 pounds. You know, I don't think that that's gonna happen. For a lot of reasons. It's not, it's not combined weight? Can they do that? We, we both together weigh 245? You know, I, now I am kicking myself for not having seen that, because I don't know if anybody who follows Julie Kedzie on Instagram has seen her uh, I'm going to say repeated and baffling attempts to make pancakes, which I'm going to regard as one of the easier foods to make. You're insane. No one can make pancakes. Well, apparently no one in Julie Kedzie's house can make pancakes because they're awful. It's the hmm. worst attempt at pancakes. It's like a, a toddler wandered in there having only seen a cartoon of the final product of pancakes and tried to just basically reverse engineer it and failed miserably. Well, let's hope she's not listening. I'm sure she is. Tweet the fifth. Great question. Can you remember who you were before the world told you who you should be? How the fuck is that a media criticism? 
Chad? I'm going Rich Franklin on that one. That to me screams Ace Franklin. It does kind of. It does. Uh, I'm going to piggyback off of that one and go with the other Rich Franklin, Randy Couture. Both fine guesses, only one correct. It is Rich Franklin. Damn it. Chad's streak of sure-handed dominance continues. I'll give you this. You have an ear for Franklin. Yeah, that, 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 I didn't even know that one. That was just a guess. Sounded like Rich Franklin to me. Well, I guess that does it for Master Suite Theater. Sir Nigel, what you got going on? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished shooting a project about a plucky young woman trying to make it in the big city who kills a young girl in a hit-and-run accident for which someone else is blamed. I see. And what's it called? Bridget Jones's Diary, The Edge of Reasonable Doubt. (laughs) And what role do you play? I play young, skinny Bridget Jones. I doubt that. Well, that was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Well, Chad, September 12th at the CompuWare Arena in Plymouth Township, Michigan, the big homie Manny Newton did it again. Another spinning back fist knockout, this time of baffling title challenger Joey Beltran yeah. at uh, Bellator 124. What do you make of this? What do you make of the big homie Manny Newton? Is he somebody worth paying attention to yet? I think that he is worth paying attention to, to be honest with you. And like, uh, I'm, I guess I will just come out and say, I like Manny Newton. I like Emmanuel Newton. I like, uh, watching him fight. I think it's kind of interesting to watch his super awkward fighting style that seems to comprise almost completely of spinning shit. And like, he does that weird thing where he keeps changing his stances and he, he like, he doesn't look like a tremendously athletic fighter. Like he, he's one of those light heavyweights that's not like six, four, six, five. He's more of the like, Five eleven, six foot, kind of stocky uh, build. So he doesn't look like a guy who's gonna blow you away with his athleticism. But god damn it, if he doesn't just keep knocking motherfuckers cold with that spinning back fist. Uh, and and I guess he's had a couple of performances that that weren't tremendous. His fight against Attila Vey to win the 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 become I guess the undisputed Bellator light heavyweight champion uh, was kind of slow paced. He got a little bit tired in this fight against Joey Beltran, uh, but ended up having a highlight real finish and you know every time i see him talk also i feel like that there's kind of some stuff to like there i feel like as fighters go like he's a he's a pretty good he cuts a decent promo and i like to see him crying like a baby when he talks about his three-year-old daughter and then he just goes out there and murders people with his spinning back fist when you say he keeps knocking motherfuckers cold with the spinning shit you mean twice and that's a lot <laughs> Like, those are his two big highlights. He did it to Muhammad Lawal back last year in what was might have been the knockout of the year, uh, although I don't know that it, it won a, a lot of knockout of the year awards because it happened in Bellator and, and not very many people saw it live, but uh, did it again to Joey Beltran and tried it like four or five times in this fight before no, he, he finally... Will, he will try it a bunch. In, until he finally connected with it, and it's just kind of impressive that when he hits you with it, like... It's like he hit the off switch, man. You're just done. 
Again, though, I think he's going to face the same problem that we've seen other Bellator champions face, which is that you can only get so high in the rankings, the general like MMA rankings, it seems, by fighting in Bellator, because eventually you kind of you run out of people to fight, especially if you're in his situation, right, where he's kind of a teammate of Rampage Jackson's, at least they share a coach. Uh, and it doesn't seem like anybody internally there is really excited to make that fight happen. And yet, what bigger fight is there really for you in Bellator right now if you're Emmanuel Newton, if not Rampage Jackson? Well, I'm, we're going to talk about this a lot in the third round, just kind of like our perception of Bellator and uh, our perception of the UFC and how they differ. I, I, yeah, we talked about this a little bit on, on uh, G-Chat earlier today, where I kind of posed the question, what if you took Emmanuel Newton's exact career that he has had in Bellator and just like put it in the UFC where he beat... Uh, Muhammad Lawal twice and then beat Attila Vey, who had been the Bellator champion and then had this fight, which seemed like a weird matchup against Joey Beltran. But a dude that the UFC has promoted in the past as, you know, Joey Beltran as one of those guys that's hard to put away and is kind of one of these zombie style fighters that always comes forward. And it seemed like Emmanuel Newton got a little tired, like. Maybe he didn't train quite as hard as he could have coming into a fight with Joey Beltran, but then he ends up knocking him unconscious with his highlight reel finish. Like, how would all of those fights be viewed differently, if at all, if he had had them in the UFC instead of in Bellator? Yeah, I mean, I, I see your point there. And at the same time, though, I mean, I don't think that that would really put him super high up on the rankings uh, just because of the, the the quality of competition in there. I mean, Molawal definitely those are his biggest wins, uh, and I, I mean. I feel like that's always going to be your problem when you're in that situation is that even if you get to be the best guy in Bellator, if you're in the division where nobody really thinks that that necessarily means that much, you're kind of, you kind of get stuck, right? Like you get to a point where like, what can you do? You need either Bellator to go out and get you somebody else. And right now the light heavyweights they seem interested in getting are like yesterday's news, uh, in the form of Tito Ortiz and Stefan Bonner. And then they're just going to show up with dudes in fucking masks, like a goddamn Kabuki show. Uh, that's not really going to help you any if you're Emmanuel Newton. I mean, does it seem like that they have to make the the Rampage Jackson fight? That like that's the only thing that'll move the needle there for for your boy Manny Newton? Well, I think it's it's you have a couple of options with him. Did you watch this Bellator event? Did you not see live? The, but I went you, back. Did and you watch the light heavyweight final between Liam McGee? Yeah, I saw and, I saw that one and Kelly Anderson. Uh Liam McGee. What is it with the inverted shit happening in Bellator? What is with that? Yeah, that's that's weird. And as much as Jimmy Smith wants us to, we're not going to call that the Bellator. Like that's just that's that's not happening. But Liam McGeary is a dude who's nine and zero, and is another guy who, if he fought in the UFC, would probably be a lot more highly regarded than he is because uh, uh, he's he's trained by Hanzo Gracie. He's undefeated. The dude is six foot six, uh, and you know is well rounded, has knockout power, and and as he showed this. This weekend against Kelly Anderson in the in the final of this tournament, like uh, pretty weird but effective ground skills where he tried to go for that weird Americana off his back like three or four times and was clearly uh, causing Anderson some pain. Uh, didn't manage to force the tap out with that, but then eventually hooked up this weird inverted triangle choke and got the uh, got the the finish in the, at the tail end of the first round. Honestly, like I'm kind of excited to see Liam McGeary fight Emmanuel Newton, and I know that that. Uh, is is kind of like a, a weird quasi MMA nerd thing to say, but like, are we not excited for that fight just because we don't pay attention to Bellator? Like these seems this these, this seems like a matchup of two kind of interesting and cool dudes that are going to end up fighting for the light heavyweight title. You know that's a, a really valid point because that's a, a situation where yeah, if you take away the title, whatever, uh, 
and, and whatever claims you want to make as to where they stand in the division. If you just take look at that one as a skill against skill matchup, that is interesting. That is an interesting fight. And I feel like a lot more people would be stoked for it if they paid attention to Bellator. And it brings us back to that question of who is Bellator's audience? Is it a completely different audience in the UFC? Is there not as much overlap as we think? Like, And are those people... Are they following it week to week? Like, are is there a through line in their minds where they see the, those fights on the same card and think, all right, that's one I'm interested in seeing down the line, the winner of that one versus the winner of that other one? Uh, or are they just like, hey, it's Friday night, turn on the damn TV. Uh, who are these guys that, uh, these faceless Russians or whatever that Bellator has for right. us this week? Well, and it's kind of weird. Like, Bellator does, or at least in the past, has done kind of a bad job, I think, like encouraging people to follow that thread. I mean, with the tournaments, it should be easy. But remember when King Mo fought Rampage Jackson, ostensibly that was in a final of the light heavyweight tournament. And like, Emmanuel Newton didn't even come up because we knew that he wasn't going to fight Rampage Jackson because they're teammates. He'd already fought Mola Wall twice. Uh, and now you've got this thing on Friday night where Liam McGeary has this impressive finish to win the, this second light heavyweight tournament and ostensibly go in and fight for the title. And I'm not sh- I'm not quite sure that Bellator did a good job reminding us like, oh, hey, these two guys that just won, they're going to fight each other somewhere down the down the line. Like, I think they could do kind of a better job uh, leading us by the hand to to you know, taking interest in their storylines. I guess my question would be, you've got this fight set up now with the, the such a weird fight announcement between Tito Ortiz and Stefan Bonner. Uh, would it be a worthwhile thing to try to put Emmanuel Newton in a fight against the winner of that? Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I, sure, what the hell, right? I mean, I guess it's one of those where it's at least a high-profile one. It, it'll get people's attention, uh, and maybe that's the best you can do with some of those guys if you're Bellator is use them to try and get whatever's left of them to rub off on the actual champion that you have who, who you know, no one is saying that we would think that the guy has no skills. It's just a question of whether people are care enough about him to start paying attention and start watching these fights and see what he actually has. So, I mean, maybe that is the, the smartest thing you can possibly do once you're done playing around with masks and bullshit like that. Uh, I also, though, I just feel like the, the, the barrier is still there. I was talking to Eddie Alvarez about it today, uh, that where the, it's in the minds of the fighters and it's in the minds of the fans that like, as long as it's in Bellator, you, you still don't get the sense that you're watching the, the best people, even right. if some cases you might be. Yeah. Like it's just the perception problem is so difficult to overcome there. I don't know how you do it. Well, I think we're going to talk about that a little bit more in round three. It does bring up, though, when we were at that that party, remember, a little while ago. I think it was right after Rampage Jackson, King Mo, uh, and we were kind of talking about it. And oh, this yes. other guy overheard us and, like, came over and was, like, wanted to know what we were talking about. And we were like, oh, we just had this, you know, we we're talking about this fight that we just watched in Bellator. And that dude was like, what's a Bellator? Yeah. Like, had no idea what it was. But he was so stoked about MMA that yeah. just hearing two dudes, like, overhearing two dudes having a private conversation about it, he felt the need to insert himself into it yeah and yet had like we were informing him of bellator's existence for the first time which is bad if you're bellator and when you say party you mean a show that your band played at an empty bike shop it wasn't empty dude there were some people there well i mean they had emptied it of bikes there was people in there just bikes yeah let's get it straight (laughs) respect the total combined there there were at least at least 17 people there all right let's do uh tips for the well-rounded fight fan we haven't done this in in quite a while ben what what is your tip this week for the well-rounded fight fan well chad you know that uh i'm a big fan of fiction writer david mitchell i am i do know that that's right he wrote cloud atlas uh which was an awesome book made into a terrible movie uh but 
I mean, the guy I don't think has ever written a bad book, and I've read everything he's written, and he's he's earned that status with me now. Where whenever he has a new book coming out, I don't even know need to know anything about it. If David Mitchell puts his name on it, I'm buying that shit the day it comes out. I did it with his new one called The Bone Clocks, uh, and uh, took it with me. Bought it electronically, an electronic book. Took it with me on the, the old ebook on the old uh, iPad uh, when I went on my main vacation, and. Uh, even though, you know, he's a good enough writer where he could just write just naturalistic, realistic stories and I'd still be totally into it. He also finds the feels the need to throw in some weirdo fantasy shit, which usually I'm not into. But when he does it, I'll totally be into it, which just speaks to what an awesome writer he is. Uh, and whether you think you like fantasy shit or not, you should go ahead and buy The Bone Clocks by David Mitchell. That motherfucker can write, man. He can just straight up write. Uh, this week, Ben, my tip for the well-rounded fight fan is the show Rectify, which is over on the Sundance channel. Just finished up its second season. You can find the first season on Netflix. Uh, I assume that the second season is going to be available for streaming before too long. Uh, I remember in Deadwood, the dude who played the, uh, the preacher who has like a brain tumor yes. ends up dying. That guy is not- Spoiler alert, Jesus. Oh, sorry if you haven't seen Deadwood. Uh, that dude is the creator of Rectify and like one of the writers. Really? He's not in it, but, uh, man, it is a weird and, and sometimes off-putting show. But like if you stick with it, I feel like it turns out to be kind of awesome. It's about this guy who gets convicted of murdering his girlfriend in the nineties when he's 18 and spends like 20 years on death row in Georgia and then gets released because because of uh, DNA evidence and the show is kind of about his life getting out of prison and like trying to find his way and trying to reinsert himself into society and into his family. And they do this weird thing where you're not sure if he did it or not. Uh, and, uh, you know, it seems like you kind of get an answer by the end of the second season, but it's just a very strange uh, show, but good. I feel like if people have the uh, wherewithal to stick with it, sounds right up your alley. It's strange and off putting and takes a long time to like it. Yeah, that does. That's that's me all over. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. All right, Ben. Well, in round number two, we talked a little bit about the perception problem that afflicts Bellator. Uh, and, I, you know, as we sometimes do in these third rounds, I guess we just we're going to kick our feet off, kick our shoes off, put our feet up, get a little philosophical here. Just riff. Just get deep with it. Yeah. Um, so Bellator and the UFC both put on events over the weekend. Uh, and I'm just going to make the assertion that if you just look at, if you take the totality of the two main cards, uh, they kind of seem comparable to me. Uh, and one of them occurred on, on television and uh, I'm going to just wager that about like half a million people probably watched it. One of them occurred only on the internets. Uh, and we have no idea how many people watched it because the UFC didn't millions and millions around the world doesn't release those, those numbers. But but they're in 700 countries. I'm going to guess, I heard. I'm going to guess that it's not half a million. Uh, um, let's just say what I've, what I think is probably a, a liberal estimate and say maybe 200,000 people watched it. Uh, so if that's anywhere near right, maybe twice as many people watched Bellator this weekend as the UFC. Uh, and yet I think in the, in the wake of it, 
like most of the attention by the media and fans gets paid to these UFC events because we're conditioned to believe that like whatever happens in the UFC is the most newsworthy thing and, and that they have the best fighters. Uh, are we into a situation here though? Like at least on these weekends where we have fight pass shows and Bellator does a televised show where Bellator is kind of getting the short end of the stick here. Should we be paying more attention to Bellator? Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess then we get into a conversation about what does the medium itself count for? Because I think we're moving toward an era just in general, not just with sports or MMA, but just in general where we're drawing less and less of a distinction between televised and streaming on the Internet. That it used to be, you know, if you were on, just on the Internet, it meant that you sucked and you couldn't find anybody willing to put you on TV. And I think that now more and more people just end up watching TV on their computer anyway, regardless of, of what the source is originally, that maybe that, that line gets a little blurrier. I don't know if you can necessarily say, like, if you're, if you're on TV, you must be better than whatever's on the Internet just by itself. I mean, I do agree with you that the cards themselves, like quality-wise, were comparable. Right. You know, there wasn't a huge gap between, uh, you know, what we saw in the, from Bellator and what we saw from the UFC. Um, but I don't know. I, I can understand, like, if you're Bellator, hell yeah, you'd be frustrated that, look, like, we're on Spike TV in, you know, 100 million homes or whatever it is, uh, and the UFC is streaming this shit on the internet, uh, and they feel like they, the media still treats them like they're the more important one. Yeah, and I agree with you that that the actual broadcast format is becoming less and less important. And at some point, everybody's going to be doing all this stuff on the internet uh, and scre- streaming it to their, you know, mind control television boxes or whatever we have in the next century. Probably stre- streaming it straight into their minds. Yeah, uh, watching it via hologram in their brains. Uh, and that's that's true. I think that like there's less of a stigma now against stuff that just gets streamed rather than stuff that's on cable television. Uh, but the numbers, even though we're just obviously estimating like how many people are watching stuff on the fight pass like the numbers are still important right like even with the most liberal uh uh, forecasts for how many people watch these fight pass shows, I think it would still be less than the number of people that watched Bellator. And, uh, if you're Bellator and you feel like, well, hell, we're putting on a card of comparable quality. Uh, we came out of it with comparable highlights. You know, you had this weird inverted triangle in one fight. You had a, uh, uh the knockout in the, in the, uh, main event. Uh, and by the UFC's own metric, like the only thing we're supposed to care about at this point is whether or not we get a fun fight out of it. That's right. right. So if Bellator is putting on a comparable card with as many highlights that feels just as fun, like I agree with you at this point, doesn't Bellator have to be like, man, what can we do? How do we win? Like, like, is this just a no win situation for Bellator? Yeah, that is tough because like when you lay out the case like that, like if, if like, let's imagine that as a case to the media and the fans like that, they should both. Uh, be treating Bellator more seriously or at least being more willing to like look at, okay, what's on tap this weekend? Uh, compare it one alongside the other, all things considered and say who has the more, you know, must see product. I mean, there are, they are on different nights most of the time. So, uh, it's not really like an either or kind of thing. Uh, but if you are like, if you're Bellator and you're saying, look, now's the time, compare us side by side with some of these fight pass cards and we beat them. Uh, I mean, I don't know, like, if that's not enough, then it seems, that seems like a bleak statement for Bellator. Because I don't know, that's a problem that I don't know how you can fix, that if it's just ensconced in people's minds that the UFC, that is the top, and everything else, even if it might be just as good as what the UFC is doing that weekend, and even if it might be, you know, available to way more people, and more people might actually even watch it, like, 
man, that's depressing to think that you could come away like beating the UFC in terms of viewership and still people don't regard you as as important. Yeah, and obviously there are some differences here. Clearly when the UFC puts on a numbered pay-per-view event that where they pull out all the stars, you know, even without uh John Jones, Daniel Cormier, the uh, UFC 178 later this month is probably going to be better than any a top-end Bellator card at this point. Yeah. Definitely. Uh and you know that the, these fight pass cards uh, like this one that happened this weekend, they were able, they're able to put six fights on the main card because they don't have commercials, obviously, or anything like that. Bellator only has four fights on the main card. And yet, if you're Bellator, I feel like you could make the case, look, man, you could switch both these cards. Like, if, if the Bellator card had happened in the UFC and Ryan Couture had come out and steamrolled this guy and Elsie Davis, who was a longtime WEC fighter, came out and got a win and Liam McGeary got this highlight win and Emmanuel Newton got this highlight win in the UFC uh, on Fight Pass and then the Fight Pass event was actually in Bellator and, like, Gleason Tebow comes out and Gleason Tebow's somebody on Spike TV. Like, in the wake of that, like all of the MMA websites are going to be like writing what we learned about UFC Emmanuel Newton versus Joey Beltran, <laughs> right? Like, isn't that like, that's, that seems to me like a fair assessment, which again, like you said, that's bleak for Bellator because you know, the UFC is, has expanded its roster so much that when you have weekends like this, where it's a fight pass card against the Bellator card, like they are comparable. And yet Bellator just isn't, doesn't get anywhere near the, the, the attention or the fallout. Well, don't you think that the, that is to, even if it's not like because of the actual matchup between that card and the Bellator card, that it is because of what you mentioned earlier, that when the UFC pulls out the styles for USC 178, when they decide to get serious about one, uh, you know, they can, they can really blow you out of the water. I mean, I think that that, that effect reaches over to even the, the events that don't have that going for them because, like, that's how the UFC maintains that position, you know, as the, the industry leader. Because when it does decide, like, okay, here's our big show for the year or here's our big show for this quarter, uh, you know, the, especially the dates, you know, the, the times on the calendar where we can expect a big event from the UFC, when it, when it pulls out all the stops for one, it's still way, way better than anything Bellator can pull together. And it seems like that effect, you know, that kind of ripple effect carries over into other stuff like this fight pass thing. I mean, can you imagine Bellator trying to get you to pay for a, a digital network where the fights that weren't quite good enough to go on Spike TV uh, would be streamed over the Internet? There's no way they could pull that right. off. Right, yeah. And I would still probably not pay for that. Uh but and you'd be not paying for so much shit, it'd be awesome. <laughs> and isn't some of this, like, how much of this, it puts, like, a, a responsibility or an onus on the media, uh, because... You know, in the, in, like I said, in advance of these like fight pass cards, people are still pulling out their like flagship set pieces and writing like five reasons to watch the UFC fight pass this weekend. Nobody's really writing that. Most disgusting, despicable fucking thing. No, the opposite of that. Right. It's the opposite of that. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the opposite of despicable. But nobody's writing that stuff about Bellator when, you know, you have an event that a lot more people are probably going to watch. Like it seems comparable in quality. And, and so I wonder, is it a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of that like, we treat these UFC fight pass events as though, you know, they're normal UFC events when really if we, if we're, tr if, and ever, I think everybody in the media would tell you, oh man, we really want Bellator to succeed. We want them to be like a player in the market. Like, do we have some responsibility to like, even though I always joke about this, like exercise some news judgment here and look at like what's happening on a weekend like this and be like, you know what? I think we should pay a little bit more attention to Bellator than maybe sometimes we do. Yeah. That's a fair point, you know, and I, I guess though the question is like, do we, how much news judgment do we expect people to, to exercise to the extent where we're going to tell the fans, here's what you should care about. Whereas, you know, 
instead of following here's what the fans show us they care about by what they click on. I mean, that's right. the that's the thing about internet a, journalism right. is that you see immediately what people care about and there's always going to be the tendency to like see, okay, what did they click on? Let's give them more of that. How can we recreate that over and over again? Right, and that's a major rift in journalism between like digital media and like traditional like newspaper journalism. I would say that like that's fine, you know, if you want to following clicks and giving people what they want is important, uh, especially in digital media, but like that doesn't totally strip journalists of their traditional job, which is part of part of that job is that like kind of be the arbiter of what's news and to like you know say hey this is important i'm not only here to give you what you want like part of my job is to give you kind of what you need in terms of like hey this is also quality stuff that that deserves your attention and i wonder also like i said before how much of that is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that like this UFC stuff obviously probably gets better traction and, and attention on the internet, but how much of that is because we treat it like it's a bigger deal than Bellator? Yeah. Like it's sort of a chicken and the egg, like a snake eating its own tail almost to kind of, uh, you know, and we've, we've been doing that for years, right? Is that a thing that Bellator can even overcome? Yeah. That there's this like long, uh, you know, repeated and, and in, inbred almost uh, uh, perception that like whatever the UFC does is the best thing going. Yeah, you know what I think would be really popular uh, with the internet uh, fan base uh, and click wise is images of attractive people engaged in sexual intercourse. Really? I feel like that might do you really well. You think that might make some waves on the internet? Yeah, I feel like if, uh, you know, maybe it's something that if you threw it out there and you could see what the audience response was like. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's true that uh the the idea that it's in everybody's head so much at this point that we can't even tell how it started or what is perpetuating it at this point. I mean, I think that's a I, that would make me really frustrated if I were working for Bellator and trying to figure out like how do we how do we get through that? How do we get people to start like actually looking at this stuff side by side and and giving us credit when we have something that's as good or better as what the UFC is offering that weekend? And on the UFC side, doesn't it seem like now is the time when they're making that? as easy as possible like they've never in like if you're inviting that comparison now with these fight pass cards like this is the worst time for you to do that if you're the ufc because now is the time when you are offering up so many more cards and so many of them are watered down like you do not want to be inviting that comparison between these fight pass cards that you can't decide if you want us to care about or not. We can't decide if these fights are for us or not. Maybe they're for whoever the local population is. But then again, you're going to keep trying to pump them up and pump up the headliners if it's something we should care about and includes fighters that we have you know, led to believe that we should care about. And yet at the same time, if you were to compare them the from the top to the bottom to Bellator, you might not come out looking so great. Like I, that would seem worrisome for the UFC. And then, as you said, it's just not happening. Yeah, the the way that they've expanded the roster and are now, you know, in order to do so many additional shows that they're doing this year and on into infinity, we're led to believe they have, you know, they've created this this situation where they have so many fighters under contract that like. Obviously the high end fighters are the UFC has a lot more of them than Bellator and they're still the, the, uh, the gold standard in mixed martial arts. But like if you picked randomly, asked a computer to randomly generate the average UFC fighter, it's probably pretty much the same. 
as what you're getting in over on Bellator. So if you're Bellator, you'd think this would be the perfect time to like make a run and try to be a contender. But I guess what we've been talking about for the last 13 minutes leads me to believe that it's going to be harder than just, than just doing, uh, you know, just putting on good shows. I think it might come down to the, like Viacom has to open the purse strings. And they have to steal a couple of UFC fighters, man. You know, I hear they're uh, sitting on like two trillion dollars. That's something. right. In cash. Yeah. Scott Coker just lords over it. Huge he has a throne of made of cash yeah. at his house, yeah. which is also made of Cash. I hear that the the mountain of cash is so big it creates its own weather pattern. Uh, well, you know what? That's I, I feel like that's an interesting thing to ponder as we move into the future. Um, we're kind of running out of time now, though, so let's just do uh, just saying stuff, and then we will uh, we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, I'm just saying I don't know if you saw this, but uh, according to the internet's, uh, Randy Couture will be on Dancing with the Stars. Did I uh, beginning tonight? Well, this week I'm just saying. I think right now, especially among the Dancing with the Stars audience, there are a lot of 40 to 50-something secretaries or women who work in human services and human resources who, uh, they don't know it yet, but they're about to fall in motherfucking love <laughs> with Randy Couture. God, I'm just saying so. it's going to be the best thing to happen to older female libidos since Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, expect some uh, some cauliflower-eared themed sexual fantasies after Randy Couture gets on there and shakes his thing on Dancing with the Stars. You kidding me, Randy Couture? Come on with your bad self. Wow. I'm just saying. God, like unexpectedly erotic I'm here just at the saying. end of the show. I'm just saying. Maybe he goes out there and he does an Arlovsky titty dance and the world loses its goddamn mind. Uh, ben, did you see that Ryan Bader and his wife had a son this past week? I did not. Mazel tov. Did you see what they named him? I did not. They named him Rocket. Huh. Rocket Bader. That's, that's that's his legal name. I think so. That's what it said on the Twitter machine. Huh. So I'm just saying, uh, what are the odds that Ryan Bader and his wife have been listening to recent episodes of the Co-Main Event podcast where we talked about this very phenomenon and they just completely wanted to guarantee that their son would grow up to be a rad wrestler dude and or a rodeo cowboy. So they just went ahead and named him <laughs> Rocket Bader, man. I'm just saying. There's no chance that kid does anything besides becomes a sweet wrestler. Yeah, they were really concerned that he might uh, fall in with the wrong crowd and become an appellate court judge. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Justice Rocket probably isn't happening, but maybe. I don't know, man. We'll have to see. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to uh, break down all the stuff that happens at this UFC event in Japan this weekend. Uh, maybe we'll talk about Doug the Rhino Marshall versus Melvin Manhoff on Bellator, too. And uh, then we'll look ahead to UFC 178 the following week. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So you think that the, the Arlovsky titty dance can become like a new Macarena? You think it's, I, I think it has some legs. Well, someone needs to make a viral video of it, probably on the YouTubes with uh, maybe Who Let the Dogs Out as the, uh, as the soundtrack. Yeah. And I just have Arlovsky doing that dance in various locations.